0: I want you to take a Bible today. Let's open it together in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel chapter 11. If you didn't bring a Bible, how about grabbing one off the back of the seat in front of you and opening it to uh, page 198, 1 Samuel 11, or page 198 in our copy of the Bible. Now, Brenda and I were down in New Orleans uh, not too long ago, and we took one of these little tours of the city, And they put you on a bus and they ride you around and whatever. So they took us to one of the graveyards in there in New Orleans. I didn't know this, but you know in New Orleans they don't bury people under the ground because the water table is so high it just, well, it wouldn't work. So everybody's buried above the ground. And they took us there, you know, and we walked around. And while the group was off listening to this guy, you know, yada, yada, yada about something, I went over and just started walking around looking at tombstones. You ever done that? Just walked around a graveyard and read the inscriptions on tombstones. It's really fascinating. If you got a free day and you don't have anything to do, go to a local graveyard and just walk around and read tombstones. You go, oh, that is sick. No, it isn't. People put on their epitaph, on their tombstone, they put, you know, what really made this person's life special, what made this person's life stand out. And it's fascinating to see some of the things that are on there. Here's one I like. Uh, a little humorous. It said, here lies an atheist all dressed up and no place to go. I thought that was hysterical, all right? Some, you know, are chock full of meaning. Like the one I shared with you a couple of weeks ago, written by John Newton, the former slave trader who wrote Amazing Grace. On his tombstone, his epitaph is, once an infidel and a libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa by the rich mercy of Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy." Now that's a a tombstone. Well, here's the question I want to ask you and me this morning. If you and I were to sit down and write our epitaph, or if somebody else, if we were to die and somebody else were to write our epitaph, what would people put on our tombstone? What about our life would they pick out to highlight? Uh, would it be a godly epitaph that where people call you blessed or would it be like one of these other epitaphs I ran into? It said this, Here lies a man who lived for himself and had no concern for how others fared. Suddenly he's dead and where he is now, nobody knows and nobody cares. Or would they write that on your tomb? I want to talk to you and me today about how we as Christians can leave a godly epitaph behind when we're gone. Something that we would be proud for people to say at our funeral about us. Something that we would be proud to have people write on our tombstone. And we're going to look at an event out of the life of the great Old Testament prophet Samuel, because he's what kind of puts us onto this. Now, we're in a study of the life of David. Now, we haven't got to David yet. We're on our way. We'll get there soon. Because Samuel is going to anoint David as king very soon. But right here we're talking about Samuel. And remember, Samuel's old. He's about ready to die. The people have asked for a king. And he's agreed to appoint one, a man named Saul. So when we pick up the story, he and all Israel have gathered together at a place called Gilgal to have a coronation event for King Saul. So let's pick up First Samuel chapter 11. Look at verse 14. Then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal, and there we will reaffirm the kingship. So all all the people went to Gilgal and confirmed Saul as the king in the presence of the Lord, and they sacrificed there, and they had a great celebration. Now, this is going to be the last time Samuel is ever going to have the whole nation of Israel gathered together, so he takes this opportunity to give them a little farewell speech. Here we go, verse uh, 1 of chapter 12. And Samuel said to all Israel, I have listened to everything you said to me, and I have set a king over you. Now you have a king as your leader. And as for me, I am old and gray, and my sons are here with me. I have been your leader from my youth until this day. Here I stand. Now look what he says. He says, testify against me in the presence of the Lord, whose ox... Have I taken? In all those years I was your leader. From the time I was a young guy to an old man, did I ever take one ox from any of you that wasn't mine? And he goes on to say, whose donkey have I ever taken? Whom have I cheated in all those years? Whom have I oppressed in all those years? From whose hand did I ever accept a bribe to make me shut my eyes to the truth? If I've done any of these things, you tell me about it and I'll make it right right now. And the people said, well, you've not cheated us and you haven't oppressed us and you haven't taken anything from anybody's hand that you shouldn't have taken. Samuel said, the Lord is witness and also the king is witness this day that you could not find anything that was wrong in my hand. And they agreed and said, yep, the Lord is witness, Samuel. You've been a godly man. You've been a righteous man. You've been a decent, honorable man, Samuel. We all agree to that. Now, what Samuel says here is not wordy, it's not long, but it is incredibly powerful. It's powerful because of the power of Samuel's life. Here was a Christian leader who lived with integrity and humility and honor and honesty and authenticity, not just for a couple of years, but from the time he was a little guy till the time he was an old man. And everybody in Israel agreed that indeed he had lived that way. You know, we live in a day and an age where Christian leaders are a joke. Everybody from Jay Leno to Saturday Night Live makes fun of Christian leaders. They make fun of everything from Tammy Faye's makeup to Jimmy Swaggart's self-righteousness. And you know, I'm not saying that we don't deserve some of this. You know, when we decide we're going to present the message of Jesus Christ to an unbelieving world, they expect us to have lives that back up the message we're giving out. They should expect that. And when we don't have lives that back back it up, well, then they're going to laugh us out of town, folks. Let me take a moment and say that if you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, the most common excuse I hear is people saying things like, well, I once knew a Christian and they did this and the other thing, yeah, 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 yeah. And that's why I'm not going to be a Christian. If you're here and you've never trusted Christ, listen a second. The veracity of Christianity, the trustworthiness of Christianity, is not based upon the fact that Jesus has perfect followers, friends. Jesus does not have perfect followers. If we were perfect, we wouldn't have needed a Savior in the first place. We are not perfect. And so many people look at our lives and say Christianity is a hoax and it's a fraud because the followers of it aren't perfect. We never claim to be. The veracity of Christianity and the trustworthiness of Christianity is based upon the fact that the leader is perfect. And when you can find something wrong with Jesus Christ, then you have every right to say Christianity is a hoax. But that doesn't mean you have the right to do that because you find a follower of Christ that isn't perfect. So be careful you're judging Christianity on the right basis, okay? Something to think about. And and yet in saying that, I'm not in any way trying to to absolve us as Christians of our responsibility to live lives that back up what we're telling other people. I say to my staff all the time, and ask any of them, they'll tell you. I'm constantly saying to them, guys, we only really have one qualification for ministry. And if we lose that one qualification, we're finished. That qualification is our personal credibility. And if we ever lose our personal credibility in the eyes of people, it doesn't make any difference how many degrees you have. doesn't make any difference how much theology you know your ministry's done. You're finished. Credibility. Here's the great thing about this guy Samuel. After years of leading Israel, after years of living in a fishbowl, after years of having his life inspected with a fine-toothed comb by some of the pickiest people in the universe, people like my mother, after all of that, he is able to stand up and say what he says here in 1 Samuel 12, and the people all agree with him that, yes, you're right, Samuel, you are an honorable man. Hey, that's, that's, that's what I call a good way to finish your life, huh? Wouldn't that be a great way to finish your life? I, I, I'm always talking to my three, old, my three sons and telling them the same thing. And they're always saying, well, why do you keep telling us this? And I always keep saying, because you're not listening. If you listen, I'd stop telling you this. And they'd go, okay, and so we've got to go round and round. It's a little game we play at our house, you understand. I talk and they tell me they're listening, but they don't pay any attention. So I talk more. But anyway, well, here's what I always tell them. I always say, guys, this is the deal. You need to understand this. They don't give out medals at the start of the race. Y'all understand that? They give out medals at the end. And the reason they don't give them out at the start is because any idiot can start the race well... It's a person who finishes the race well that they give the medals to. Because to finish the race, that's a different deal. To finish the race takes integrity and stamina and commitment and persistence and tenacity and grit to finish. That's why they give the medals out at the end. I don't care how you start. It's how you finish that matters to me, guys. And that's what matters to God and to the world. Finish the race well. That's got to be your goal. Don't be the Titanic. That's what I always tell them. Don't be the Titanic, guys. Titanic started well. Now the finish left a lot to be desired. Don't be the Titanic. Finish the race and do it well. And you know, this is what's so great about this guy Samuel. Here was a godly man who did exactly that. He not only started the race well, he finished it well. I think that's great. Do you know, in the Bible, there are 2,930 people mentioned in the Bible? If you don't believe me, go home and count. Trust me. And do you know of those, we only have information enough about a hundred, uh, about a hundred of them do we have enough information that we can tell how their life started and finished. And of those 100 people uh, about whom we have enough information to tell, less than one third of them finished well. We've got guys like Samson, and we've got people like Lot, and people like Judas Iscariot, people who started well, but they shipwrecked. Like the Titanic. Less than a third finished well. This is the real mark of success. Not starting well, finishing well. Samuel did it. Now that's the end of our passage, but it leads us to ask the really important question. And what is it? Thanks, guys. Love you guys. Okay. All right. So what, Lon, I've never been to New Orleans, I've never seen that cemetery, I don't know Samuel, and I never read his tombstone. So, so what? I don't care, this doesn't make any difference for my life. Oh yes, it does. Let's talk about it here for a second. Did you hear the story about the guy who went into this spiritualist, and he wanted to know whether or not there were golf courses in heaven? And she said, gosh, I don't know, I've never been asked that question before. So she said, can you give me a week to work on it? He said, sure, I'll come back. So he came back in a week. And she said, well, I got some good news and some bad news for you. Which do you want first? He said, well, give me the good news. She said, oh, the good news is there are golf courses in heaven. She said, the fairways are long and luxurious. The greens are plush. The clubhouse is immaculate. He said, "Ah, that's fabulous. He said, what's the bad news? She said, "You tee off Wednesday at 2 (laughs) o'clock. Now, uh, here's the point of that. You'll get it later. Here's the point of that. If somebody told you that you were teeing off Wednesday at 2 o'clock on the great golf course in the sky, and if somebody asked you, like Samuel, to make a little farewell speech where you kind of summarized your life a little bit, you know, and and highlighted what you thought was the most important things that, that you represented in this world, what would you say? You ever thought about that? What would you pick out? Would you talk about you know how much money you'd made or how your investments went or how big your house was or what your golf score was or you know how where how many times you'd had your name in it? But what would you talk about if you had just a few moments to summarize your whole life? Isn't it interesting that when you look at Samuel, who had the opportunity to do that, I think I think it's very interesting what he chose to talk about. Do You know Samuel was a big shot. Did you know that? He's a big shot. He was an exalted religious leader of Israel. He was the guy who led at the temple, gang. He was the high priest. Then do you also realize this guy was a, a, a political heavyweight. He was the political leader of the whole nation. Everywhere he went in the nation, people knew him as the political leader. Was it either one of these things that Samuel picked out to talk about? Negative. He also was a guy who was a great godly man. He talked to God personally. I mean, face-to-face, personally, had conversations with God. I've never done that. you ever done that? Did, you, did he sit around in his last moments and say, By the way, I want you to know, you know, I talked to God personally. This is something you should remember about me. Isn't it interesting? None of these things were what he said he wanted people to remember about him. What was it that Samuel chose to sum up his life and talk about? Did you notice it? All he talked about was being a servant. He said, what I want you to remember about me, gang, is that I was a humble, honest, put your needs ahead of my needs, do it in the name of God's servant. That's all I want you to remember about me. If you remember nothing else, that's how I want you to remember Samuel. Samuel's speech here reminds me of another great speech by a great man of God. In the New Testament, a guy named Paul. I'd like you to look at it with me. It's in Acts chapter 20. Page 788, if you're using our copy of the Bible. Page 788, Acts chapter 20. While you're turning, let me give you a little background. Paul is speaking here to the Christians in the city of Ephesus. City of Ephesus is in present-day Turkey, Asia Minor. Paul went through here. He started the church here, but he just didn't start the church and leave. He stayed in Ephesus for three years, teaching the Bible, mentoring these young Christians, being there for them. During those three years that he stayed in Ephesus, he worked every day, making tents, with his hands, so that he could make enough money not only to pay for his own bills, but he also paid for all the living expenses of all the people with him. Timothy, Erastus, Luke, Silas, all these guys you read about in the Bible. Paul earned enough money to pay all of their bills so that they weren't a drain on these new Christians. And then they would do missionary work at night, after they were done working. Now, the occasion for Paul's speech here is that this is the last time... He's ever going to see these guys on the face of the earth. Look, verse 22. And now, compelled by the Spirit, Paul says, I know I'm going to Jerusalem. I don't know what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that there's prison and there's hardship there. Verse 24. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given me. Don't you love this guy's perspective? All he wants to do is finish well. Nothing else matters. Verse 25. Now I know that none of you, among whom I've gone about preaching the kingdom, will ever see me again. Guys, this is it. This is the last time we're ever going to see each other on the face of this earth. Paul says, God's told me that. And so he takes this opportunity to make his own farewell speech, just like Samuel did, kind of his own epitaph speech. Now, what is it that Paul emphasizes in his speech? You know, Paul had some pretty impressive stuff, you know. I mean, he'd been caught up to see heaven. That's pretty impressive. He'd been knocked off a horse on the road to Damascus and saw Jesus and talked to him personally, the risen Lord. Well, that's pretty impressive. He was an apostle. You know, I mean, a big muck-a-muck in the church goes around, you know. I mean, this guy, you know, he's not the Pope. Peter already had that, but he was like next in line or whatever, you know. I mean, he's right up there at the top. This guy is a huge spiritual leader for the church worldwide. What, did he talk about any of these things in his little farewell speech? No. Look what he talked about. Skip down with me, verse 33. I have not coveted, he says, anyone's silver or gold, or clothing. You know that. You yourselves know that these hands of mine supplied not only my own needs, but they supplied the needs of all my companions. You know that. Verse 35, In everything I did, I showed you, I left you an example, that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus Himself when He said, It is more blessed, To give than to receive. He said, Lon, this sounds like an instant replay of Samuel's speech. Yeah, it almost is. Because the Apostle Paul said, hey, if you guys are going to remember me anyway, here's what I want you to remember. I don't want you to remember I saw heaven. I don't want you to remember I was knocked off a horse. I don't want you to remember I saw Jesus. I want you to remember that I was here for three years and I served you guys from my heart. That's what I want you to remember about me. Now look what happens. Verse 36, and when he had said this, they all knelt down and they all prayed. Now, do you get the scene here? The entire church, hundreds of people are out here and they all kneel down on the floor around the Apostle Paul and they all pray for him. Now, watch. And then they all wept and they all embraced him. They all hugged him and they all kissed him. These are grown men doing this to Paul. What a scene. And what grieved them the most was his statement that they would never see his face again. How many pastors have their churches react like this when they leave? How many parents have their children react to them like this when those parents are laying dying? How many bosses have their employees do this for them when they get ready to leave? How many folks have their coworkers or their neighbors treat them like this when it's time for them to move on? How many people have folks come by and want to write on their tombstone, you know, we wept because we were grieved we would never see this person's face again? My Christian friend, I submit to you that if you want to leave this kind of impact in your wake, Instead of having somebody come by and write on your tombstone, hey, nobody knows and nobody cares where that person is. The only way to do it is to do it the way Samuel and Paul tell us it has to be done. Nobody's going to grieve over us or weep that they'll never see us again because we wore designer clothes or drove expensive cars because we were members of the country club, because we had well-decorated homes, because we had our picture in the post-business section, or because we played scratch golf. Nobody cares. They're going to write on our tombstone. Nobody knows and nobody cares. But it's when we touch people's lives with love and compassion and caring and prayer and genuine concern. It's when we're servants to people's needs. That's when we create this kind of godly epitaph. That's when we create this kind of godly impact. And you know, this is God's heart for you and me if you're a Christian. God's goal, God's heart is for you and me to embrace what it means to be a servant like this to the needs of people. As the purpose for why God left us here, God did not leave you here, friend, to be a big shot. Trust me. God did not leave you here to make lots of money and just live and have every fantasy you ever wanted fulfilled. That is not why God left you here. God left you and me here as Christians to serve the needs of people just like he did when he said, hey, the Son of Man did not come to be served. He came to serve. Want to make an impact? Want people to write something nice on your tombstone? You've got to be a servant they say, well, Lon, put some handles on this for us, okay? What does it mean to be a servant? I mean, make this practical. Bring it down to everyday life. Love to. Let me give you the three key elements of what it means to be a good servant. You want to be a good servant? This is what you've got to do. Number one, the word is integrity. You've got to be a man or a woman of integrity. By that, I mean that if you look at Samuel and you look at Paul, these were guys who had the opportunity and the position to fleece their sheep, and they didn't. These were people who had the opportunity to take advantage of the people under them, and they didn't. These were people who had the opportunity to call all kinds of personal benefit from the people under them, and they didn't. They were men of integrity. Samuel said, have I cheated anybody? Did I oppress anybody? Did I take advantage of anybody for my personal gain? And all the people said, no, Samuel, you didn't. Paul said, did I covet your gold or your silver or your clothes or anything? Didn't I work with my own hands and take care of myself so that I didn't take anything from you guys? Yes, Paul, you did. True servants are men and women of integrity. They are not in it to see what they can get from people. They're in it to see what they can give to people. And even if they're given the opportunity to take advantage of people, they don't do it. You know, have you've been keeping up with Zaire lately, you know the longest sitting monarch in Africa is now history. President Mobutu, he came to power in 1965. I was in high school when this guy came to power. That's how old I am. And he presented himself as the savior of Zaire. The, the servant of the people that was going to lead Zaire into the modern world. Yes, I'm servant. Time Magazine said he departed on a three decade stealing spree from his people. Using the copper trade in Zaire. He, he built himself eleven palaces like the Taj Mahal in Zaire. He bought himself twenty-one estates around the world. He owns a palace on the French Riviera. He owns a 16th century castle in Spain. He owns a little chateau in Switzerland and 18 other properties around the world. He amassed a personal fortune of $4 billion. And he left Zaire and the people in absolute, total, abject poverty and ruin. 80% of the people in Zaire don't even have a job. You cannot drive from one end of Zaire uh, to the other on a paved road. You used to be able to, but the roads are in such disrepair. There's not a paved road you can drive from one end of the country to the other on. All the money went into his palaces. In the best hospital in Zaire today, this is the best hospital, named, by the way, after Mobutu's mother. But in the best hospital in the country, patients have to bring their own drugs, syringes, sheets, and food to the hospital. And if you get well in the hospital, which is a 50-50 thing, if you get well in the hospital and you don't have enough money to pay the bill, they put you in prison till your family can come up with the money. Was this guy a servant and a blessing to his people? Are you kidding? He joins the ranks of Idi Amin of Uganda and Ferdinand Marcos of the Philippines who said they wanted to be servants, but when given the opportunity, they used their position not as men of integrity, but they fleeced their people and they filled their own pockets. Friends, this is not a servant. A servant is a person who says, I'm not here to see what I can get. I'm here to give to my people. And even given the opportunity to take advantage of them, I'm not going to. Want to be a good servant? Be a person of integrity. Second, humility. Humility. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul Working every day, making tents. I mean, that was a pretty lowly job. I mean, a lot of, I, I know a lot of ministers who wouldn't even think about going out and doing that kind of stuff. I mean, they are the, they're the minister. The minister doesn't do that. Well, I don't know about that, but Paul didn't say, I'm the apostle. Apostles don't do stuff like that. That wasn't Paul. Paul was a humble man. Paul said, I'll work with my hands. I'll work long hours. I'll provide for our needs. And I'll preach at night when I'm exhausted. This was a humble man of God who was willing to do the hard grunt work it took to be a servant. Friends, if you think there's anything glorious about being a servant, you don't understand servanthood. Well, I meet people all the time who say to me, you know, Lamas it be great to be a pastor of a large church. They're clueless. These people don't have a clue. This is not glamorous. This is hard work. There's no glamour to this. There's no glamour to serving people. Moms and dads who serve their children, who earn a living and wash the laundry and fix the meals and take care of the house and run the carpools. There's no glamour to this. This is just hard work. Sunday school teachers and children's workers in a church who come in and they they study at home and they bring in crafts and they go into a room with 32-year-olds. This is not glamorous. This is hard work. Bible study teachers who study hours and hours and hours at home so they can come to a 30-minute Bible study and be a blessing to God's people. No glamour in this. Having the title of being the teacher. This is hard work. And care group leaders who care for people and 2 o'clock in the morning are on their phone, the phone with people in their small group who are visiting in the hospitals because they're sick and who are there in crisis for these people. There's no glamour to being a small group leader. It is a lot of hard work. Listen to me, friends. Godly servants understand that to be a servant, it takes the grunt work, it's hard work, but they're willing to do it because they're humble men and women who just want to serve God. You can't be a good servant if you're not willing to be humble. Third and finally, not only integrity and humility, but third and finally, generosity. You see, servants have a perspective on what God's given them, on their resources. And their perspective says, God didn't give this stuff to me for me to just simply feed my every fantasy. God gave me these things to use them in serving others. And Paul did that right here. Look at verse 35. Paul says, In everything I did, I showed you that by the hard work I did and the money I earned, we must help the weak. Does he mean help them with time and energy here? No, he means help them with money. Paul not only earned enough money to pay his bills and his friends' bills, but he gave money away to weak people, indigent people, poor people. And by doing this, he said, we need to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. This is how servants view their resources, as a way that they can serve and help others. Did you read about the guy out in Leesburg, Virginia? I was in Chicago, and I read this in the Chicago Tribune. I'm surprised you didn't read it locally. The guy lives in Leesburg. He walks into the town hall this week, Pull, he's, got, he's just dressed in jeans. He pulls out of his jacket a check for $1 million and gives it to the secretary in town hall. And says, use this to take care of children here in Leesburg, to help children. And he walks out. And the check didn't bounce. It was good. It went through. It was a good check. And the guy's name, they actually found out who he is. The guy's name is Erwin Uron. He's 71 years old. And for the last three years, he's been living in a motel room in Leesburg. You say, which one? I'm trying to find out. Trust me. But anyway... No, I'm teasing you. Anyway, the guy is worth $400 million. This was pocket change for this guy. Can you imagine this? And every day he eats breakfast at the bagel bakery right next to the hotel, and the article said he never fails to ask for his senior citizen discount. Now, can you believe that? That's true. (laughs) I mean, it seems a little strange when you're worth $400 million to worry about a quarter, but hey, maybe that's why he's a millionaire and I'm not. But the guy, when they ask him in the article, what are you doing? He's giving away millions of dollars, most of it anonymously. When they ask him, what are you doing? Living in a hotel room? He doesn't have a Mercedes. He doesn't have a mansion. He doesn't have anything. Lives in a hotel room. Here's what he said. Quote, he said, my mother told me before she died to help people. And that's what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. My life's work now is helping people. Friends, that is the perspective of a servant on what God's given them. Not what I can do for myself, but what can I do for other people. Integrity, humility, generosity. Want to be a good servant? That's what it's all about. You say, Lon, you know, we love you. God bless you. You you know, you're you're the sweetest thing. But, you know, you're crazy. You're out of your mind. You can't go out in the real world and live like this, son. This is church talk. I mean, in church, maybe this will work. Although we have our doubts about that. But you go out in the real world and you live like this, people will eat you up. They will step on you. They will grind you into pulp. They will completely take you apart. Are you nuts? This is a lock and load world, buddy. You can't walk out there and live like this, Lon. You're totally out of touch. Well, I didn't make this up, friends. This is God's Word, and I don't think God's out of touch with the real world, do you? I mean, the world in which He wrote this was a pretty lock-and-load world. They had the Roman army that walked around, cut people's heads off without notice. That's pretty lock-and-load. And He said you could live that way in that world. Why can't you live that way in this world? I don't believe that's true at all. I believe you're listening to a lot of worldly propaganda instead of listening to what God tells you. Because, you know... When we look at the people this world idolizes and the, the, the heroes of this world, isn't it interesting none of them are the lock and load wizards who run over people, take advantage of people, victimize people and hurt people to get where they want to go? These aren't the people the world idolizes. The world idolizes people like Mother Teresa. What's her claim to fame? She's a servant. The world idolizes Billy Graham, even though he tells them that they're lost and they need Christ. And he tells them faithfully, the world idolizes the guy. Why? Because the man's a servant. The world idolizes Martin Luther King Jr. Now, regardless of what you may think about what you've heard of his personal life, here was a man who served his people and his people love him. The world idolizes Gandhi. Now, I don't like Gandhi's theology, but here was a man who as a humble servant served the people of India and those people worship him. And we have Abraham Lincoln and George Washington and Florence Nightingale who started the Red Cross. These are the heroes of the world. Do you hear any of these heroes being lock and load wizards? Every one of them are just servants. And friends, when the dust clears, I'm telling you, the lock and load wizards may have been in the paper, may have owned the buildings, may have driven around in the rolls, but when the dust clears, nobody cares. They go to their tombstone and we write on them, nobody knows and nobody cares where they are. It's the servants... That we go on honoring for centuries. Don't tell me this doesn't work. And if somebody takes advantage of you, so what? If somebody steps on you a little bit, so what? Serve them. That's what you're there to do anyway. And God will honor you for it. So what? What? This is God's heart for us. This is where God wants us to come out on this, friends. Did you see that they made a little nun bun? Did you see about the nun buns they made down in Texas now? They're making these little cinnamon rolls and they're painting Mother Teresa's face on them with icing. Did you see about this? And they're hottest selling thing in Texas. Let me ask you a question. You think they're ever going to make a Trump bun? Don't think so. Don't think so, not unless they're planning to just run over it and squash it with their automobile. Don't think so. Nobody idolizes Donald Trump. But people idolize this woman for being a servant. You know, I was with a guy out in uh, the West Coast. I'm, I'm, a through with, I'm through with this. And he... Um He and I were talking about him coming and joining our staff. He's a great speaker. I mean, just a fabulous guy. Travels all over the world going in, doing conferences. He's good with people. Got a real heart for God. And and we were talking, and, and he said to me partway through the conversation, we were sitting in this restaurant, he said, well, Lon, you know, let me tell you what's really hanging me up. So what's really hanging me up is I just don't know if I really want to come to one place and serve the same group of people all the time. You know, he said, it's so exciting to blow in and blow out. You don't have to deal with problems. You don't have to get phone calls two o'clock in the morning. You don't have to go to visit a hospital. You know, it's, I just don't know if I want to be in one place with people all the time. I said, okay, let me ask you a question. I said, let's say that, you know, what you're eating, you got some, something stuck in your throat and I tried the Heimlich maneuver and we couldn't get it out. You died right here. How many of these people all around the world that you go talk to are going to get on a plane and come to your funeral? How many cars are you going to have in your funeral procession, huh? He hesitated for a minute and he said, Well, probably not that many. I said, let me tell you something, pal. If you're making the kind of impact where nobody's going to come to your funeral, you're not making any impact. Because people come to other people's funerals. Now, a few come because they feel obligated. But if you come and you don't feel any obligation, but you just come, it's because somebody's made a difference in your life. Somebody's touched your life. Somebody's made an impact on your life. And I said, if you can't trace more than two or three people in the whole world that would come to your funeral, then I think you've got a real problem. I said, you need to get yourself into this church or some other church where when you die, there are going to be some cars following the hearse, friend. That's what this is all about. It's not traveling around and being a big shot. It's about serving people and making an impact on their life. Let me ask you, how many cars are going to come to your funeral? They're not going to come because you're a big shot. They're not going to come because you shoot well in golf. And they're not going to come because you've got a well-decorated house. They're only going to come if you serve the needs of people and make an impact. That's a good question to ask. How many cars are going to be in my funeral procession? If it's not as many as you would like it to be, I can tell you how to fix it. Just go out and serve people. Do it unto God with integrity and humility and generosity. And that's how you'll leave an impact for Jesus Christ. It's how Paul left it. It's how Samuel left it. You can't be in better company, friends. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for reminding us today that the world lies to us all the time about what it really means to make an impact, that that being a big shot and rolling over people, this isn't how it's done. Remind us that the way that we leave a godly epitaph for ourselves is by serving the needs of men and women. And I pray that you would help us do that from the heart. Change the way we see our lives, the way we see our world, the way we see our purpose here. Because of the word of God to our hearts today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.